Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl later wrote that he learned a valuable lesson while in a Nazi prison camp about human freedom. He wrote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Though tough circumstances often conspire to cause bad attitudes, Frankel's right. In the end, our attitude is a choice. Today's episode is the fourth in our April series, Building the Mental Toughness of Jesus, with the study of the last two fruit of the Spirit, meekness and self-control. Both attitudes call us to live above our circumstances. And the great news is that the Holy Spirit has been given to all Christians to empower us to do just that. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode number 17 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. One of my favorite movie scenes is from an old one, The Black Stallion. The scene of the black running with elegance, grace, and power on a picturesque beach. It was the magnificence of the almost majestic strength of a stallion under control. That is a picture of the eighth fruit of the Spirit, translated meekness or gentleness. The Greek word is proutes which describes a horse that is no longer wild, but has been trained to respond to the control of the rider. Proutes describes a powerful, spirited animal that has learned to answer to the reins, to accept control. It is a wonderful picture, but hard word to translate into English. Meekness is probably the best we can do, with a couple of important caveats what the word does not mean. This is especially true because Jesus described himself as meek. Number one, meekness is not weakness. Perhaps because meek rhymes with weak, many people associate meekness with being spineless, weak-kneed, ineffective, basically a wimp. But Jesus calls himself meek, and you cannot see Jesus cleansing the temple whip in his hand, fire in his eyes, turning over tables, the money changers stumbling all over themselves to escape Jesus' fury and think that meekness is spinelessness. It is not. Neither is meekness timidity. Jesus was not mild-mannered. One author writes, We have had enough of the emaciated Christ, the pale, anemic, namby-pamby Jesus, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Perhaps we have had too much of it. Let us see the Christ of the Gospels striding up and down the dusty miles of Palestine, suntan, bronzed, fearless. Clean the canvas. Get back to the original. Not this religious weakling of our imagination. Not this affected emotionalist of our pretty pictures, but the Christ commanding in his manner, challenging in his message, 
conquering in his manhood, compelling in his mission, the real Jesus, the revolutionary Jesus. Third, meekness is not fearing confrontation. Jesus was not like a codependent wife of the drunk who just takes his physical abuse, refusing to confront her husband with his problem, or the man who refuses to stand up to his boss. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus not only rode into Jerusalem his final time knowing that he would be crucified there, but before that he went back to his hometown of Nazareth a second time, even though the first time the elders had tried to execute him by throwing him off a cliff. That is not exactly a pattern of one who fears confrontation. So what is meekness? Let's return to the magnificent, powerful, spirited animal that has learned to answer to the reins to accept control. The restless, wild, careless nature of the horse has been brought into submission. The horse has learned to accept control. It no longer resists or fights its rider, but quietly submits. Meekness is placing our power under the king's control. It is making all of our power and strength and passion and energy responsive to the touch of the master to whom we have given the reins of our lives. Meekness is not being passive. It is ruling and shaping our lives for our commander-in-chief. There is a second word picture that describes meekness. Paul points us to Jesus' example, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus laid aside his rights as God to take on the form of a human who has no rights, a slave. The word Paul used was doulos. The word is profoundly important for understanding meekness. A doulos was owned by his master. Meekness is seeing myself and all that is mine as belonging to God. We were bought with a price. The price is the shed blood of Christ. Meekness is renouncing self-interest and entrusting all of my rights to God because he owns me. One of the best pictures of meekness comes from a custom in Israel given by God through Moses. If a slave loved his master and wanted to voluntarily serve him for the rest of his days, the master was to bring the slave to a doorpost where the master was to pierce the slave's ear with an awl. To follow Christ is to let him pierce your ear. You belong to him as his doulos while trusting him to take care of your needs and wants. Meekness is giving all I am and own to God. He has a right to control them. My body, mind, heart, affections, sexual appetite, reputation, earning power, investments, time, gender role, home, possessions, vocation, energy, but then receiving them back again to be his stewards of them. From Jonathan Edwards' diary, this was his perspective. He wrote, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, 
this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to these hands, these feet, these ears, these eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I've spoken to God this morning and told him I have given myself wholly to him. Henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. Tremendous inner freedom, the freedom of meekness, results from seeing ourselves as belonging to our Lord. It is his job to provide for me, which brings tremendous freedom from financial worries. It is his job to provide the friends I need so I don't need to worry about being accepted. It is his job to protect my reputation so I don't need to become defensive when others criticize me or lash back at those who criticize me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his classic work, The Sermon on the Mount, defines meekness as leaving everything in God's hands. Drilling down further to one application of an attitude of meekness, it is recognizing that part of belonging to God is humbly receiving his correction. I know I am darkened in my understanding, so I need to be receptive. The psalmist points out that the meek trust God because, quote, God leads the meek in what is right and teaches the meek his way. Psalm 25, 9. James refers to this teachable attitude when he writes, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save or transform your souls. This week, I bumped into a great example of this teachable humility demonstrated in the character of a public figure whose name you will recognize, Rosaria Butterfield. She is a former LGBTQ activist lesbian and professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, who came to Christ in 1999. Two weeks ago, on the Reformation 21 website, she opened our eyes to the meekness of her character when she publicly changed her view of how Christians should respond to a trans person's request to honor her chosen pronouns. She writes, In 1999, Christ called me to repentance and belief, and I became a despised defector of the LGBTQ plus movement. But progressive sanctification came slowly, and I have failed many times during these past decades. My use of transgendered pronouns was not just a mistake, it was sin. Public sin requires public repentance, not course correction. I have publicly sinned on the issue of transgender pronouns, which I have carelessly used in my books and articles. Why did I do this? I have a bunch of lame and backside-covering excuses. Here are a few. It was a carryover from my gay activist days. I wanted to meet everyone where they were and do nothing to provoke insult. Using transgender pronouns, Butterfield now believes was not only a misguided attempt at hospitality, but a sin, a violation against the Ninth Commandment, which forbids bearing false witness. She continues, Psychologist Mark Yarhouse and author Preston Sprinkle believe using transgender pronouns is respectful of someone's chosen identity. It's kind and courteous and necessary for continuing a relationship with a transgender person. I once sinfully said all these things too, but this position makes no Christian sense. Does any real Christian believe crafting a relationship on falsehood will give the gospel a better hearing? And is that how people are converted? By meeting God on sin's terms? 
and hearing nice things about themselves? Laura Perry Smaltz offers a different perspective. In her past, she lived as a transgendered man and called herself Jake. Laura pumped testosterone and engaged in mutilating, gender-affirming surgeries. And God saved, redeemed, and transformed her into a beautiful trophy of His grace. She has recounted in countless interviews and her book, Transgender to Transformed, the opposite approach to Sprinkle and Your House and the Old Rosaria. When the Lord enlivened her heart and mind with the gospel, Laura returned to the church of her youth and her conservative Christian parents. Her church and parents had refused to use her preferred pronouns throughout all the years she lived in the false identity of transgenderism. Why did she return to them? Their refusal to lie compelled her trust. Butterfield continues, The blood of Christ does not create an ally with the sin it crushes on the cross, for that stands in opposition to gospel hope. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not Christ's friends. Christians need to learn how to love their enemies, not pretend that their enemies are their friends. Christians who use the moral lens of LGBTQ plus personhood are not merely a soft presence in the enemy camp. Their malleability makes them pudding in the enemy's hand. They make false converts to a counterfeit gospel that bends the knee to the fictional identity of LGBTQ+. Rosaria Butterfield demonstrated the meekness of submitting to correction, acknowledging her sin, and confessing it to as wide an audience as her sin had impacted. I also can't help but notice that she is part of a church that believes in accountability to one another. Such openness to correction is meekness. Well, let's move on to self-control. God warns us, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In ancient times, a city's walls were its primary defense, which is one of the reasons Nehemiah was so committed to rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Practice of Godliness, writes, Self-control is the believer's wall of defense against the sinful desires that wage war against his soul. The person without self-control is easy prey to the invader. He yields himself to the first assault of his ungoverned passions, offering no resistance. Self-control is so basic to being Christ followers that Paul specifically calls those in all four demographic groups to self-control. Older men, older women, younger men, and younger women, all from Titus 2. Self-control is governing one's desires. It includes not overindulging some of our appetites, but restraining them. But self-control involves more than control of our bodily appetites and desires. We must also exercise self-control over our thoughts, emotions, and speech. We must exercise self-control because, as Peter tells us, we are at war with our sinful desires. Self-control is saying no to sinful desires so that I can say yes to God. It is one of the most distinctive marks of a follower of Christ who said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is saying no to the wrong way to fulfill human desires and then redirecting those desires into righteous channels. Here are some insights for winning the self-control battle. Number one, the battle is not won by enjoying bodily pleasures less. Our Heavenly Father, like all fathers, loves to give good gifts to his children. Paul urges Timothy to tell the wealthy to put their trust not in riches, but in a God, quote, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Yes, there is a place to curb overindulgence, but that does not mean enjoying the righteous pleasures God gives us less. Number two, self-control is less about never falling than it is about getting up quickly after we have given in to temptation. Most of us don't have in our personality an iron will to always make ourselves practice like a concert pianist or work out like an Olympic athlete. Jesus does not expect us to be someone we aren't. Jesus was perfect, but we are not. Christ-like character is our characteristic attitude, usually exercising joy, peace, patience, and self-control, and so forth. It is consistency, not perfection. We fail because we are sinners, but sometimes our disciplines crash not because of our sin, but because of life. A disciplined quiet time doesn't mean that you never miss time alone with God. That would be selfish because others' needs interrupt our best intentions and schedules. Self-disciplined eating does not mean that you don't get off it occasionally, but that you get back to disciplined eating quickly. One of the reasons I challenge men to set aside an hour to review their mission with their commander-in-chief each week is that this habit provides a built-in part of our life schedule to allow us to refocus and to get back on track. That is self-control. Number three, long-term discipline grows out of long-term love for Jesus. Author Brian Chappell observes, spiritual change is more a consequence of what our hearts love than of what our hands do. In my life, some repentance does come from getting my hand slapped by God. But the deepest repentance comes the more I realize how wonderful God is, how good he is, how forgiving he is, how much he loves me. That is when the intensity of my desire to want to please him grows. Henry Cloud and John Townsend in their book, How People Grow, write, When we finally understand that God isn't mad at us anymore, we become free to concentrate on love and growth instead of trying to appease him. Number four, training ourselves to instantly obey the promptings of God's Spirit makes self-control easier than slow obedience. A great definition of self-control is instantly obeying the initial promptings of God's Spirit. Thomas Acompis, in his classic, The Imitation of Christ, observes an important principle for defeating temptation. He writes, We must be watchful, especially in the beginning of the temptation, for the enemy is more easily overcome if he is not allowed to enter the door of our hearts, but is resisted outside the gate at the first knock. This is one of the foundational principles for defeating lust. 
training ourselves to instantly bounce our eyes away from lust-engendering objects. But instant obedience is always easier, not just with lust, than allowing the full temptation to continue. Number five, staying spiritually sharp through iron sharpening iron is a profound principle for winning the self-control battle. A few years ago, I was in between having some strong brotherhood connections in my life. As I later went back to analyze the cost during those months, one of the first observations I made was that I became undisciplined. Eating, exercise, getting up in the morning ahead of the kids, controlling my temper, tongue, and eyes. With the wall around my city down, I was exposing not only myself, but my family to the risk of Satan taking me down. Pat Morley makes a sobering observation about how some men fall morally. He writes, Some men have spectacular failures where in a moment of passion they burst into flames, crash, and burn. But the more common way men get into trouble evolves from hundreds of tiny decisions, decisions which go undetected, that slowly, like water tapping on a rock, wear down a man's character. We get caught in a web of cutting corners and compromise, self-deceit, and wrong thinking, which goes unchallenged by anyone in our lives. Finally, one further observation about self-control. Number six, lax discipline of our children will handicap them for life because they have not learned self-control. Because of the fall, every child comes into the universe thinking that the world revolves around him or her. It is a parent's responsibility to teach them otherwise. Cloud and Townsend in Boundaries with Kids explain, If the child knows that the world requires her to take responsibility for her own life, then she can learn to live up to those requirements and get along well in life. But if she grows up in a relationship with parents where she is confused about her own boundaries, that is what she's responsible for, and about others' boundaries, what they are responsible for, she does not develop the self-control that will enable her to steer through life successfully. She will grow up with confused boundaries that lead to the opposite, trying to control others and being out of control herself. In fact, an accurate description of children is that they are little people who are out of control themselves and attempting to control everyone around them. They do not want to take control of themselves to adapt to the requirements of mom and dad. They want mom and dad to change the requirements. Lax discipline robs our children of the chance to learn to control their impulses, to make themselves do what they don't feel like doing a quality of character that is vital to succeed in life. A child without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It makes her very vulnerable. May we and our children choose to live above our circumstances, showing to the world the mental toughness of Jesus, meekness, and self-control. To summarize this episode, Viktor Frankl's observation that the last of the human freedoms to be taken away from another man is his freedom to choose his attitude is pretty biblical. It takes enormous spiritual power, however, to choose the godly attitude of Jesus, especially meekness and self-control. 
But that is precisely why the Holy Spirit was given to produce such spiritual fruit, to write the law of God on our hearts as predicted in Jeremiah 31 and mentioned in Hebrews 8 as having been fulfilled. We observed first what meekness is not, weakness, timidity, or the fear of confrontation. Rather, it is placing our power under the king's control. One aspect of meekness is being teachable, either to God's reproof or that of others. In the past two weeks, we've seen this expression of meekness in Rosaria Butterfield's admission that she wrongly compromised the ninth commandment that requires all humans to speak the truth in her teaching that Christians should respect a trans person's chosen identity because it is necessary for continuing a relationship with a transgender person. Noting that Rosaria has joined a branch of Christianity that believes in accountability. Self-control is an absolute requirement for protecting against any whim, desire, or hunger capturing the throne of our lives, our hearts, and dragging us or our loved ones onto a path of destruction. Building self-control is not accomplished by enjoying bodily pleasures less or by wishing we had the iron will of an Olympic athlete in training. Lasting self-control is rooted in the intensity of our desire to please our commander-in-chief, a response to his love for us. At its peak, self-control is instant obedience to the initial promptings of God's Spirit, and such self-control makes obedience far easier. We finished by looking at two foundational keys to self-control— staying spiritually fit through iron sharpening iron in connections with our brothers, and finally, having been taught in childhood to say no to what I want instead of parents giving in to my wishes and training me to think that I am the center of the universe. A lack of self-control for both adults and children is dangerous. It is like a city without walls that can easily be broken into and its inhabitants taken captive. For further prayerful thought, number one, in what ways is the eighth fruit of the Spirit, translated meekness or gentleness, like a horse racing across the beach under the control of a rider who loves him? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you may want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, we complete our April series, Building the Mental Toughness of Jesus, as we look at the astounding promises that God makes about gaining wisdom and examine some key wisdom principles for men. In May, we begin a new series, Thinking Biblically About Money, Greed, and Economic Justice. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast.